In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. The Peter Schiff Show. Another big move today in the U.S. stock market, except this time the big move was to the upside, more than eradicating all of yesterday's big decline. In fact, looking back historically, yesterday's drop was the second biggest drop in history for the U.S. stock market for the second day of a new year. The biggest drop on the second day of a new year was in the year 2000. And that was the the year where the NASDAQ bubble originally popped. So that big drop happened at a time where the market was peaking and we were just beginning a bear market where the U.S. stock market went down by about half and the NASDAQ went down by 80%. So not a good comparison. On the other hand, today's rise was the second biggest rise for the S&P on the third day of a year in U.S. stock market history. The first biggest rise happened in 1932, and that was during the Great Depression. So clearly not a good period for the U.S. stock market or the U.S. economy to have to go back to 1932 to see a third trading day in January where you have this big a gain. In fact, the Dow was up uh, 3.3% on the day, but the S&P up 3.4. The biggest mover was the NASDAQ, which was up four and a quarter 
2.8%, so well bigger than the drop that we had yesterday. Russell 2000 up 3.75%. So what was the catalyst? Why did the U.S. stock market go up so much today after being down so much yesterday? Well, first of all, the market started off on a positive note. I'm pretty sure we were up two, 300 points right uh, out of the gate. I mean, the futures, even before we got the non-farm payroll number that came out at 8.30, the futures were already trading and there was already a big gain before that number was released. So it wasn't the jobs report that actually was responsible for today's move. It had much more to do with the comments made by uh, Fed Chairman Powell, which I think those comments were made maybe an hour, hour and a half after the stock market opened. But let's start off uh, early this morning. What was propping up the, the market in the morning or overnight was more optimism that a trade deal between the U.S. and China is imminent. Now, of course, whatever trade deal is negotiated is going to do nothing. Nothing will have changed substantively since before the deal. So any kind of deal is simply going to be an opportunity for the president to once again claim credit for doing something, even though he didn't do anything. As far as what good a deal will do for the markets is it will remove the uncertainty surrounding whether or not a deal is going to happen. But the only thing positive for the markets will be that maybe the trade war will come to an end. It's not that there's going to be any real benefit to the U.S. economy. It's just that we'll stop undermining the economy or hurting the economy uh, further by self-inflicting more wounds. Of course, the, the one uh, negative, I guess, that might flow from a, you know, a elimination of the tariffs, Trump mentioned how much money the U.S. Treasury was collecting in tariffs. Now, of course, he claims that he's collecting the tariffs from the Chinese. That's not true. He's collecting the tariffs from American consumers who buy Chinese products, which is pretty much everybody. But nonetheless, that was money going to the U.S. government, and that money was you know, limiting somewhat the budget deficits because there was a bit of a tax hike offsetting some of the increases in government spending or other tax cuts that were enacted. So one thing that will happen for sure is if we do end the tariffs, the budget deficits that are already large and rising will get even bigger. But in any event, the anticipation of some type of deal uh, was supposedly why the markets were higher. But then we got the jobs numbers. And of course, you know, there was a lot of speculation as to whether the number would be better than expected or not as good as expected. And yesterday on my podcast, I talked repeatedly about the fact that I now believe that the economy is a very important element for the stock market and the confidence that the economy is going to be strong underpinning corporate earnings. So I think that good news is good news and bad news is bad news. So when it comes to the jobs report, good news is a strong report. 
a report that shows a lot of jobs being created. People interpret that to mean that uh, the consumer will have more money because he has a paycheck and so they can keep on spending and so the economy can keep growing and corporations can keep earning. So when it comes to jobs, you want um, good news. Also, you know, for some reason, people look at rising wages uh, as good news. I mean, there are a lot of reasons to think that's good news. But when it comes to corporations, you know, you may want to second guess that because if companies are paying higher wages, that could come at the expense of profits. I mean, wages could be up because profits are down as companies have to give more uh, output to the workers and they have less for the shareholders. But I guess they don't, uh, you know, they don't think that far ahead. They just look at the immediate impact. Hey, higher wages, uh, that means more spending. And so that means more earnings. And so that's good. But for many, many jobs reports that have come out uh, recently, good news was bad news because the good news of a strong jobs market meant bad news for the Fed. The Fed was going to keep hiking rates. And since low interest rates were really the fuel uh, that was propelling the markets, the markets kind of wanted bad news because they wanted to keep the Fed uh, out of the game, right? They wanted to keep rate hikes from coming. And so for a while, bad news was considered good news because it, it kept the Fed on the sidelines. But I think now, since everybody already believes the Fed is on the sidelines, they want good news because the fear was that the Fed was going to cause a recession by raising rates and that recession was going to be bad for the stock market because it was going to be bad for earnings and a lot of bad things were going to happen. But now everybody believes that the Fed is on the sidelines, that they're not going to hike rates. In fact, as I mentioned on yesterday's podcast, the odds of a rate cut in March now exceed the odds of a rate hike. That is a complete switch from where the market was a month or two ago when I was out there talking about the Fed's next move being a cut. And that was seen as a ridiculous uh, assertion. Now it's kind of mainstream. So the markets have really moved. They no longer fear the Fed uh, continuing to hike rates. They think the Fed is going to stay on the sidelines. And so they're looking for more confirmation that the economy is strong. And, and so they think they've got the best of both worlds, where you have a strong economy, but a Fed that is not going to interfere. So when this news came out, and the Dow, again, was up about 300 points before the number was released based on the futures. And it initially sold off a little bit, up 200 and change. But by the time the stock market opened, it had already recovered. The Dow was right back at around 300 plus. And so there was no negative impact like we would have seen months ago. We came out with a jobs report this much above the consensus and the S&P futures would have tanked, but they didn't do that. And let, let's look at the numbers. So the December number, uh, the estimate was 180,000 jobs. Remember, I said yesterday we got that ADP number that was way above estimates, which led me to believe that we'd probably get a stronger report uh, today from the government. And we, in fact, we got a report that was even stronger than what was indicated by the ADP. We got 312,000 jobs created in, in December, way above consensus, blown away consensus. And to make it even better, they revised the 155,000 jobs from November. They notched that up to 176,000. Now, the unemployment rate actually jumped up from 3.7% to 3.9%. 
And one of the reasons for the jump in unemployment was the increase in the labor force participation rate, which went from 62.9 to 63.1. In fact, that's the highest it's been in about five years. And we finally kind of broke above that 63. And so more people entered the labor force. Not all of them found jobs. So once you come back into the labor force, you're now officially unemployed. I mean, you were unemployed before, but only unofficially because you technically weren't looking for work. But now that you are looking for work, you're counted. And so that's why the unemployment rate went up, even though a lot of jobs were created, not quite enough jobs were created to accommodate all the people that now want them because they are in the workforce. Although, you know, Donald Trump commented today at his press conference, and I'm going to talk more about that later in the podcast, but one of the comments he made specifically was about the labor force participation rate, and he referred to the 63.1% as being incredible. He said labor force participation is incredible. Look, it was better than 67% when George W. Bush was elected. So a 63.1% labor force participation rate is hardly incredible. I mean, it is a slight improvement over what we've had for the last five years, but I would not say that it is an incredible rate. Plus, we don't really know how sustainable it could be. You know, we could be back down at 62.9, 62.8 over the next couple of reports. So I wouldn't talk about the incredible labor force participation rate just yet. But, you know, labor force participation going up is not necessarily a sign of a strong economy. I mean, in reality, a really strong economy would have a decline in labor force participation. Because remember, labor working is a means to an end, right? People don't work in general because they want to work. They work because they want the things that they can buy with their paychecks. Most people, if they can skip the work and just get paid for doing nothing, that's what they would do, right? But, you know, that doesn't happen in reality. You know, obviously you could you know, be on some kind of a government dole and get paid for doing nothing. Uh, but that's not that lucrative. If you want more money, you generally have to work for it. Uh, but when you see an economy where people no longer have to work, you know, in many cases, that's a good thing. You know, before the collapse of the dollar in the 1970s, very few uh, married women with children worked. And they didn't want to work. They wanted to stay home and they wanted to take care of their children. So labor force participation for women prior to the 1970s was very, very low. And that was a good thing because women didn't have to work if they didn't want to. I mean, they could have worked. You know, plenty of women did work. But if you were married and had kids, most women did not want to work. Today, you know, women don't have that choice. You have a much higher labor force participation rate among women today than we had back then. But that's not a sign of a strong economy. It's a sign of a weak economy. It's a sign that an economy is so weak that the husband can no longer afford to support the wife. So now the wife has to work too. And so labor force participation has gone up because the economy is weaker. Same thing with children. You know, I mean, at one point, you know, there was child labor and now very few children work. Uh, and it's not because of the labor unions. It's because, you know, children didn't have to work. I mean, most parents didn't want their young kids to work. It was only because that was the only way they could feed them, 
right? I mean, parents don't send their kids to work if they have a, you know, another alternative. And because of capitalism and the advances that we had, the labor force participation rate for children went way down. And so if the labor force participation rate for children started to go up, that would not be a good sign. That would be a bad sign. So labor force participation is up. It's possible that it's up because there are more jobs at higher pay and people who didn't want to participate now want to because they can earn more money than they thought they could earn. And so they're excited about the job prospects. And so now they want to work. I mean, that's possible. But another possibility is that you have people who didn't want to work who now feel that they have no choice. Maybe there are people that are retired and they weren't looking for work, but you know what? The cost of living has gone up. They've lost money in the stock market or the bond market, and now they have to come out of retirement. Now they're looking for work. They weren't looking for work before. They didn't want to work. They wanted to play shuffleboard or you know lie on the beach, but you know now they got to work. So the fact that people who were retired now feel compelled to try to find a job, and now they're in the labor force, that's not a good sign. I mean, maybe there's some married women with kids who now all of a sudden have to work. They didn't want to, you know, they weren't in the labor force the last few years, but now, you know, their husbands, you know, aren't making enough money or the cost of living is going up. And now maybe some women, married women, have to start working. In fact, I read an article on Zero Hedge that said all of the job gains uh, from this jobs report went for people 55 and older, that younger workers actually lost jobs uh, during the month of December, and you had a big gain in employment for older people, which would indicate to me that many of these older people were actually retired and have now come out of retirement and are now back in the workforce, either looking for jobs or they got a job. And is that a good thing? I mean, if people are, you know, involuntarily pulled back into a labor force that they'd rather not be in, they'd rather be enjoying their retirement. Uh, so it's not a good thing. Now, I know some people are going to say, hey, Peter, you're trying to have it both ways. When the labor force participation rate is going down, you're saying it's bad. And now when it's going up, you're saying it's bad. When I was criticizing the dropping labor force participation rate, it was as an explanation of why the unemployment rate was falling. So many people were no longer considered unemployed because they were leaving the labor force. But they weren't leaving the labor force really because they were now so rich they didn't have to work. That wasn't the reason behind the mass exodus, especially if you look at all of the young people, people in their 20s and 30s who were leaving the labor force. Obviously, they're not retiring, you know, at that age and they're, you know, they're young, they're single, they don't have kids. They should be working and they're not working. And that is a problem. In fact, the labor force participation rate for men hit an all time record low. Right? And so that is a bad thing. The fact that young, able-bodied men who should be out there working are not working is a problem. But just because the labor force participation rate is notching up does not mean the economy is all of a sudden getting better. It could easily mean that the economy is getting worse. It depends on why people are moving back into the labor force. And obviously, it depends on the type of jobs that they, that they got. Now, another data point that came out today that would normally spook the markets, but today it did not, was the higher than expected gain in average hourly earnings which were up 0.4% versus the 0.3 that was expected. The gain was 0.2 for the uh, prior month. And the average hourly earnings year-over-year change 
moved up from 3.1 to 3.2. The expectation was actually for a drop from 3.1 to 3.0. So you have these hotter than expected wage numbers. Now, normally the markets would be very screamish about that because the Fed would be looking at these numbers. Oh, more inflation, you know, wage inflation. We got to jack up interest rates and the markets would have sold off. But that is not what happened. The markets are not worried about the Fed raising rates anymore because that has changed. Now they're worried about the economy. So they're looking for evidence of a stronger economy. And when they see the higher wage numbers, they look at that as a stronger economy. So the so-called good economic news that came out today was actually a positive for the stock market. And you know, one of the reasons, too, that wages may be higher is because the people who are getting jobs are older and therefore more skilled and therefore are uh, getting a higher pay, right? If most of the jobs or all the new jobs are going to people in their 50s and 60s, these are people who have a lot of work experience and who probably are more productive than the younger people who don't have the experience and the skills uh, that people that have been in the labor force uh, for you know many, many decades would have. So that is one explanation too for the higher wages. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's a strong economy. It's just the, the, the composition of the people who are now getting jobs and, and, and what they're doing. But what really got the market going was not the, the jobs numbers, but comments that were made uh, by Jerome Powell at this panel. I think, I think it was down Atlanta, I'm not sure, but it was uh, some economic club was meeting and the panel consisted of not only the current Fed chairman, but the prior two uh, Fed chairpersons, uh, Ben Bernanke and Janet Yellen, were all there. And it was kind of like a love fest. And they were all, you know, patting each other on the back and talking about, you know, how much how, how much good, you know, they've all done and the Fed's done for the economy. You know, enough to make you nauseous. But uh, the only comments I think that people cared about were the comments from uh, Chairman Powell, because he's the only one that's still you know, on the FOMC. And so what he says is what counts. No one really cares about what these other uh, former Fed chairmen who are no longer voting members uh, are saying. And if you look at, listen to the comments, uh, Powell, I mean, they were tailor-made for the stock market. It's almost as if he brushed up his script, right? Somebody took him behind the barn and got his mind right. And he came out as an uber dove, right? And all he talked about was, why the Fed was going to be patient, patient now is back, patient in raising rates, that the Fed is not worried about inflation, that the Fed is not worried specifically about rising wages, uh, about the low unemployment rate, right? None of this stuff, which you know would have concerned the Fed a few months ago, all of a sudden, the Fed's not worried at all about any inflationary pressures in the market, uh, about wage growth. Everything is fine. The Fed is going to be patient. But more important than his patience, Jerome Powell basically announced his willingness or the Fed's willingness to revisit the quantitative tightening, right? The wind down or the runoff of the balance sheet. Remember, he made that statement that the balance sheet rundown was on autopilot, that it kind of was going to go on. It was going to happen no matter what. Right. The Fed was not even going to think about that. We're going to keep on shrinking the balance sheet. And to the extent that there's a problem, well, we're just going to address address that with interest rates. Right. And I said, oh, that's very problematic for the markets. Well, this time he basically said that 
the balance sheet is in play and that if the economic situation changes and that warrants a change to the balance sheet, if the shrinking of the balance sheet becomes a problem or is part of the problem, well, then they're going to stop doing it. So basically, that's what the market wanted to hear, and that is what caused the rally to move into a higher gear, and you saw the big rise in the stock market. Now, the dollar dropped uh, on that news, although the dollar index didn't make so much of a big move because the dollar wasn't down that much against the euro. The big moves were in the commodity-sensitive currencies. Australian dollar, which had gotten beat up the night before, had a big rise today. Canadian dollar as well. So all of those currencies, emerging market-type currencies, were very strong today. Uh, the resource stocks, a lot of these stocks... Uh, commodity stocks up five, six, seven percent today. Huge moves in commodity stocks. Oil as well had a nice move, although it closed well off the highs, but it still managed to close over a dollar higher, uh, 48 and a quarter. We were up better than two dollars a barrel at one point during the day. You know, the one commodity that was not up was gold. Gold was off about ten dollars an ounce based on all this good news, right? So people, if you were buying gold because you were worried about the stock market going down, well, here the stock market was up. But, you know, silver was only off about a penny. So silver held up strong. In fact, there were even parts of the day where silver was positive late in the day, even when gold was down. But gold did not fall out of bed based on this strong jobs report. I mean, there were times a jobs report like this might have sent gold down 20 bucks or 30 bucks. Uh, instead, it was only down 10 bucks, and gold made the highs last night. I mean, gold almost got the 1300 last night. Didn't quite make it. It did in the futures market, but not in the spot market. So we were up three or four bucks. And then by the time we got the jobs numbers, before the jobs numbers came out, Gold was down four or five bucks, and then it went down maybe twelve or thirteen dollars at the lows. Actually, I think it was down fifteen or sixteen at the lows, and then we paired those losses. But if traders really understood what all this means, they'd be buying gold stocks like crazy right now, based on what Powell is saying. Powell is basically saying we don't care about inflation. We're going to let inflation run. Uh, we're just going to keep interest rates low. Uh, we're going to have stagflation. This is a beautiful environment for gold. It's just that investors haven't figured out that that's the environment they're living in. But, you know, look at what happened in the bond market because the bond market got clobbered. In fact, this was the biggest drop in bond prices in two years. Bonds got clobbered today. Yields spiked up across the curve, uh, but big, big damage, you know, to the long end, of course. And, you know, one of the things that everybody buying stocks is overlooking is, if they're buying stocks because they think the economy is so good, look at what's happening in the bond market. Because the Achilles heel of this bubble economy is interest rates. You know, one of the reasons that the economic data started to come out so bad was the effect that rising interest rates were having on the automobile market, on the housing market, on retailing in general. And the one thing that stopped interest rates from rising was the collapsing stock market that all of a sudden got people to think uh, that we would have a recession. And so all of a sudden, uh, the uh, interest rates started to come down. But now that people think there's not going to be a recession because the Fed is no longer hiking, interest rates are going back up. And in fact, interest rates are going to make new highs because if the Fed is going to stand pat, in the face of rising inflation and you know and rising wage 
pressures, which are a consequence of inflation. You know, when Powell was at that panel, he again made the mistake of talking about wage inflation and and uh, and and goods and price inflation. There's no such thing. First of all, there's no difference because wages are prices. Wages are just the price of labor. So a wage is a specific kind of price. I mean, that's why the whole idea of a wage price spiral was a bunch of nonsense where people say prices go up because wages go up. But wages are prices themselves. So you can't say prices go up because prices go up. That doesn't make any sense. Prices go up because money supply expands. Money supply inflates, right? That's the only kind of inflation there is. Prices don't inflate. They go up and they go down. What inflates? Money supply. Money supply expands and contracts. When you expand money supply, that's inflation. When you contract money supply, that's deflation. The Fed never contracts money supply. It's always expanding. The Fed is constantly creating inflation. That's the only kind there is. And inflation makes prices go up. Now, sometimes inflation stops prices from going down. But that means they're still higher than they otherwise would have been absent the inflation created by the Fed. So all prices, whether they're the price of labor or the price of goods, are impacted by inflation. Now, recently, other prices were influenced by inflation. Stock prices, real estate prices, bond prices, all this stuff went up because of the inflation that the Fed created. And that's why we're going to see wages going up and other prices going up. It's going to be because of inflation. And one of the reasons that we have been spared the full you know, brunt of the inflation is because of our trade deficits and because the dollar is the reserve currency. We print all this money and we export it to the rest of the world and they send us goods. So we send our inflation abroad and they send their stuff here. So, you know, we win and they lose, at least in the short run. Well, all those forces are going to be reversing. The dollar is going to be tanking, right? When the Fed throws the stock market a lifesaver, right, by saying we're going to keep interest rates low, despite all these problems, they're basically throwing an anchor to the dollar. And the dollar is going to sink like a stone when the Fed ultimately has to go back to zero and relaunch quantitative easing, because that's exactly what's going to happen. Because as I said in the podcast yesterday, if people think that the Fed staying pat means the recession is not coming, they're wrong. The recession is coming anyway. And what's happening in the bond market should tell them that, because now that the Fed is out of the picture as far as tightening and that inflation could move up. I mean, look at the big jump in commodity stocks today, right? That's going to continue and it's going to accelerate once the dollar really starts to fall, which hasn't happened yet, but which could happen at any moment. I mean, again, we had this super strong jobs number today and the dollar fell. So if the dollar can't rally on a super strong jobs number, it's done. The dollar is going down, and at some point, the decline is going to accelerate. That's going to push up commodity prices, and interest rates are going to keep rising at the long end. That means mortgage rates are headed higher. That means the problems in the housing market are going to get worse. The problems in the auto market are going to get worse. You know, you know another crazy uh, thing that Trump said on his press conference he actually talked about the auto market and he said, you know, thanks to me and my policies, auto companies that had left the United States, you know, these auto companies are now coming back. And I'm like, you know, what auto companies is he talking about? First of all, we don't have that many auto companies left. I mean, we only have three. I mean, you know, you count uh, Tesla. Uh, but I mean, 
you know, no, nobody is coming back. I mean, Trump just, you know, says a bunch of stuff, right? That, that None of it has to be factual. He just says it. In fact, one of the funniest things that he said uh, at his press conference was about the steel industry because they were asking him questions about the wall. And now he's talking about building the wall out of steel as opposed to concrete, you know. Uh, and, 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 and when he was talking about why, you know, it would be better to build a wall out of steel because, you know, a steel wall would be stronger than a concrete wall. He said, you know, we, we make steel now. He said, we have a steel industry now. We didn't have one before, but now we have one. So Trump is claiming that because of the tariffs that he has, we now have a steel industry. We didn't have one before, and all of a sudden, thanks to Donald Trump, we have a steel industry. We're creating so much steel that we might as well build our wall out of steel. But the reality is, if you look at steel production in the United States, the United States produced more steel in 2014 than it did in 2018. Now, if we didn't have a steel industry in 2014 and we have one now, how is it that without a steel industry, America produced more steel than it produced with a steel industry? I mean, the reality is nothing has changed for the steel industry. The, the tariffs haven't done anything to reinvigorate our industry. I mean, it would be great if we had a bigger steel industry, but we don't. And simply putting tariffs on imported steel did not change that. But it doesn't stop Trump from bragging about it. In fact, he, again, he talked again about the NAFTA, right? And he said uh, in his press conference that NAFTA was a disaster, that it was the worst trade deal ever, and that it almost destroyed the country and he got rid of it, and he replaced it with the USMCA, which is a great deal, one of the greatest deals ever. So NAFTA was a disaster that almost destroyed the country, and the USMCA is a fantastic deal that's going to save the country when basically the two deals are practically the same. I mean, the biggest difference is the name. I mean, they tweak the edges, but you obviously don't go from the worst deal ever, a disaster, to the greatest deal ever you know, by just tweaking it around. So again, all of this stuff, Trump wants to get there and talk. In fact, he talked again about the stock market because because it's up today, right? So he was able to talk. In fact, I mentioned on yesterday's podcast the fact that Trump didn't want to have a press conference and maybe he didn't want to have a press conference yesterday or when he had a press conference, he didn't want to talk to the press because the market was way down. But today he had no problem talking to the press because the market was way up and he had that strong jobs report that he was able to brag about. So when he has this, you know, ammunition that he could use to fire at the press about how great everything is, then I think he's more likely to want to field questions than when things are going down and it's harder for him to hide uh, behind the numbers. You know, another interesting uh, point that the president tried to make when he was talking about Apple, because, of course, Apple was way down yesterday and it was up today, but only by three, four percent. So not even recouping half of its losses from yesterday. But the president was very upset at Apple because he thinks that, you know, Apple should be making their iPhones in the United States. He doesn't like the fact that Apple is making its iPhones in China. Well, you know, one of the problems that Apple is having right now is that people are balking at paying over a thousand dollars to replace their iPhone every two years and they don't want to do it anymore. And, you know, if you think iPhones are expensive now, made in China, imagine how much more an iPhone would cost if they had to make the entire thing in the United States. I mean, the reason they're making them in China in the first place is because they could do it cheaper. I mean, do you think Apple, all else being equal, 
would prefer to make their products in China? I mean, it is an American company, and a lot of the people who are buying iPhones in America, I mean, wouldn't it make sense to make those iPhones in America? I mean, if they could do it competitively, they would do it, but they can't. If they had to make their iPhones in America, they'd be so expensive, nobody would buy them. Everyone would buy phones from competitors that were manufacturing outside the United States. So it's not by choice that Apple is manufacturing in China. It's, it, that's what they have to do. It's the consumer that is demanding that because the consumer wants the price to be as low as possible. And to make things inexpensively, you have to make them outside the United States. Now, at one point, that wasn't the case. At one point in America, we made the least expensive products in the world, right? Everything that was low cost was made in America. And it wasn't because we had low wages. We had the highest wages in the world. But despite the fact that we paid the highest wages in the world, our workers were able to produce the lowest cost products in the world. I mean, we don't pay the highest wages in the world today. We're not even close, but our wages are higher than, than China and other parts of the world. But we're no longer the low cost producer. At one point in time, let's say the 1950s and 1960s, it's the imported stuff that was expensive. And I've talked about this a lot. You know, I mean, my dad used to tell me about this, that everything that was expensive, if you said, why was it so expensive? The answer was, well, because it's imported, right? And my dad said if he wanted to impress people, he would talk about how he buys imported products because everybody knew that if you bought something that was imported, it was more money. And so if you can afford to buy an import, well, you were successful. You had more money, right? You can buy stuff that was imported. But all the inexpensive stuff was made in America, whether it was clothing or consumer electronics. We made all the best stuff at the lowest possible price, despite the fact that we paid the highest wages. Now, how was that possible? It was because we had the most productive workforce because we had machines and factories that the rest of the world didn't have. Why did we have all those machines? Why did we have all those factories? Because we had a high savings rate, because we were, we were on a gold standard. We had sound money. We had limited government. And we built up a gigantic industrial economy, and we armed our workers with the tools that enabled employers to both pay them high wages but still get enormous productivity based on the capital that came from savings and investing, which was the product of a free market, low taxes, low regulation. We don't have all that anymore. We have lost all that competitive advantage. And if we want to get it back, we need to restore our competitive advantage in freedom and live in government, which we don't have and which Donald Trump has done nothing uh, to bring about. I mean, sure, there's been a little bit of deregulation, but not even close to what we need to get back to where we were. And of course, the worst thing that Trump has done is make government bigger, expand the size of government so that government is a bigger burden on the economy, so that government drains more resources out of the private sector. And so that makes the private sector less productive. But the bottom line to today's trading was this is just a relief rally based on the fact that the markets won and Powell caved. Powell has caved in to the markets. It was pressure from probably the president and the markets to get the Fed to do a 180 on, you know, we're committed to two or three hikes this year and the balance sheet is going to continue to shrink on autopilot to we're going to be patient, we're not worried about inflation, and we may uh, reverse course 
on our, our balance sheet. And so the markets are happy that the Fed threw them this bone and we had a rally. But remember, as I've been saying, the biggest rallies happen in bear markets. And that's where we are. We are in a bear market. And since the markets are now trading on good news is good news and bad news is bad news, that's bad news for the markets because we're going to get a lot more bad news when it comes to the economy than good news. And today's jobs number was more of an aberration. And jobs, again, are a lagging indicator. You're looking in the rearview mirror. When you're looking out the windshield, you'll see a lot of negatives for the economy. And those negatives are going to get bigger, especially now that interest rates are rising again because people are not as worried about the economy and the Fed has expressed a willingness to allow more inflation, inflation erodes away the value of bonds. And if inflation is going to erode away the value of bonds, then you need to uh, have a higher interest rate to compensate for that. And by the way, and I was listening to uh, James Grant, who was interviewed on CNBC today, you know, one of the only decent people that uh, CNBC will have on their air these days. I mean, there's just a small number of people that come on, and I like Jim Grant. And, and Jim Grant was pointing out correctly, and I've made the same point, that the period that we're in right now is unprecedented in how low interest rates are. Because number one, you have all these interest rates, all these bonds that actually have negative nominal yields where investors are loaning money and getting paid less than they're lending. I mean, they are deliberately entering into a transaction where they are guaranteed to lose nominally. Forget about in real terms. They're getting back fewer dollar, euros or, uh, or Swiss francs or yen. They're getting back fewer uh, units of the currency than they're loaning out, which makes absolutely no sense. But not only do you have all these negative yielding bonds, but there are no bonds out there, sovereign bonds, uh, even the ones that have positive yields, where the yield to the buyer after inflation and taxes is positive. If you buy a U.S. Treasury today and or you loan money to the U.S. government, so you're buying a Treasury, and let's say you're getting two and three quarters percent is your nominal yield. Well, you have to pay taxes on that nominal yield. You know, and so let's say after taxes, you're getting 2.7. And let's say after taxes, you got 2%. Well, inflation is 2.5-3%, even the way the government scores it. So that's a negative real yield. Nobody is supposed to lend money for a negative real yield because you're not lending money to somebody to take a loss. If you're not going to get paid a rate of interest that compensates you for inflation and then add something for the time value of money. Because if I'm loaning money to somebody, I don't have the use of that money today. I'm letting somebody else use my money. I'm not getting my money back until sometime in the future. But all people prefer to have money in the present than in the future. First of all, you may be dead in the future. You may not even live long enough to spend the money. So you have that risk. But people prefer to have things today, right, rather than to have things later, right? Uh, but if somebody agrees to postpone that gratification, right? Oh, okay, I'm not going to be gratified today. I'm going to wait two years, three years, five years, uh, and then I'm going to enjoy my money. You got to pay somebody for that, right? You got to pay them to wait. You got to pay them to hold off on whatever good things that they were going to buy uh, with that money. But that's not what's going on today. People are actually paying not to have the money today. 
They're actually, the people who are getting to use the money today are getting it for free. They're getting to use the money today and they don't have to pay it back until the future and the rate of interest is negative when you adjust for inflation. So we've never had a situation like this. And what Jim Grant pointed out is because interest rates have been this low for this long, money has been free, that a lot of things have been done with that money. Right? A lot of malinvestments have been made that never would have been made if there was actually a cost associated with the debt. And so this is going to have to change. You cannot keep interest rates at this level indefinitely. Rates have got to go up. People have got to be compensated for saving. People have to be compensated for delaying gratification, for under-consuming today. And real yields are going to come back. They are going to come back, and I think they're going to come back with a vengeance. You know, pendulums don't just swing all the way to one side and then stop dead center. They go all the way from one side to all the way to the opposite side. So we've gone from a period of ridiculously low interest rates. We're going to go to a period of high interest rates, rates that are high uh, by uh, normal standards. Well, when you've built an economy on 0% rates, you can't even survive normal rates let alone high rates, and that is the environment into which we are heading. And Jim Grant knows it, and there are a lot of other people that know that, and therein lies the economic disaster. And as this thing unfolds, as the economy continues to weaken and inflation continues to accelerate, the Fed will do nothing about inflation. Ultimately, they will take rates back to zero, and they are going to do QE4 to try to stimulate the economy, but more importantly, to monetize a tidal wave of government debt that is going to be unleashed during the next recession. If we are already running trillion-dollar-a-year-plus deficits during the boom, there are going to be 2 to $3 trillion a year during the bust, the only way to even make those deficits financeable without skyrocketing interest rates and a complete economic implosion is going to be QE4. And, you know, Fed Chairman Powell just indicated that if it's necessary, he'll do it. Well, obviously, it's going to be necessary for the point of view of politicians. So that is going to happen. And obviously, in 2021, it's going to go off the charts. You know, look at Ocasio-Cortez, right? She's already got some plan now to have a 70% top rate income tax on, on the super wealthy. Now, obviously, that plan isn't going to go anywhere now, but in 2021, it's probably going to be enacted into law or some version of that. I mean, they are going to try to put these big taxes on the rich because they're going to claim that these taxes on the rich are going to pay for all the giveaways to the poor and the middle class. But all they're going to do is they're, going to, is they're basically going to uh, – you know, bankrupt the poor and the middle class. In fact, by the time the socialists are finished, the people who are super rich will be the people who are now considered middle class. You know, probably, you know, at some point they'll be considered the super rich and all these taxes are ultimately going to be paid by the middle class because that's where the money is. But you know what? There's not going to be enough money there to pay for all the giveaways and all the programs that the socialists think uh, they're going to be able to, you know, afford or they're going to be enacting. And so it's all going to be the Fed, right? The only source of money is going to be the Federal Reserve. They're going to have to print all the money to pay for everything, which means they pay for nothing because as they print all that money, the value of the money collapses, the dollar loses its reserve currency status. 
status, we have to eat all of our inflation. We can't export it to the rest of the world. In fact, all the inflation that we've been exporting for decades is going to come back and wash up on our shores like a tidal wave. And so all the money that we've ever printed is going to come back and anything that's not nailed down right, is going to be bought up and shipped out and prices are going to be skyrocketing. And that is the inflationary depression to which we are headed. But right now, everybody is happy. Everybody thinks everything is great. Fine. That still leaves a window of opportunity for people to sell U.S. stocks into any rally, sell U.S. dollars before the bottom drops out, get more money into foreign stocks, which, by the way, had a very, very good day today because not only did foreign stocks rise as much or more than a lot of U.S. stocks, but they also had the benefit of a falling dollar. And that benefit is going to continue to increase until it ultimately accelerates. And probably, again, the best buys out there are the gold stocks. Um, people still don't get what's going on, but when they figure it out, they're going to buy those stocks like it's going out of style. But before the herd, right, you want to try to get your position completely full. The lows are in as far as I'm concerned when it comes to gold. In fact, there was some guy that was out there making a bold call for 2018. It was Byron Ween. And, you know, one of his predictions was that the Fed wouldn't raise rates. That was supposed to be a crazy prediction, which, you know, seems pretty mainstream right now. But another prediction he had for 2018 was that the price of gold was going to drop below $1,000 an ounce. So when you start to see, you know, big Wall Street guys calling for a big collapse in the price of gold, that probably means that the price of gold is going a lot higher. And so before it does, you want to get positioned in these stocks. <music>